Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast. In this episode, all surprises are unexpected. I share some thoughts on the big ideas of Hawkeye Episode 1, Never Meet Your Heroes. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me for updates and behind-the-scenes extras at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by purchasing There Was an Idea merchandise from Spring. Link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Today, I am not joined by any guests, but I am absolutely thrilled to discuss Hawkeye Episode 1, Never Meet Your Heroes. We're back with an MCU series, and I'm very excited to kick off a new season of There Was an Idea after doing a lot of topic-based episodes, some fun countdowns and drafts and other things like this, digging into the Eternals a little bit. But for the first time since Loki, I'm back with a full series deep dive week to week. After today's episode in which I'm going to talk about episode one, I will be joined by guests for each of the upcoming episodes of Hawkeye and getting back into what we do here at There Was an Idea, which is digging into the emerging themes and the characterization of our favorites in the MCU. What a way to ring in the holiday season for me here in the United States, the night before Thanksgiving watching two episodes of Hawkeye, created for television by Jonathan Igla, who is also the head writer of the series. First two episodes directed by Reese Thomas and starring, among some other exciting faces, Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton and introducing Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop. I've talked at length over the past couple of months here on the podcast about my relationship to Clint Barton's character, to Hawkeye in the MCU, I talked about how that relationship has changed. You can listen to some of my thoughts in my Hawkeye preview episode if you haven't already, in which I also talk about the Matt Fraction, David Aha comic, My Life as a Weapon, which was a big influence on the Hawkeye series. So I'm not going to recap my relationship to Hawkeye here again, although you can look forward to my guests coming up talking about their relationships to Hawkeye. But I do want to take a minute to talk a little bit about the Disney Plus series so far. And now that we've had... A few of them, WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, and What If, although, as you know, I've sort of treated What If as something a little bit different. Perhaps some of that's my own bias against the fact that it's not live action, but also I think the fact that it takes place in this multiverse and it's telling these alternate universe stories, it feels a little detached for me from the rest of this world. But now that we're approaching the end of 2021, we're here with Hawkeye the fourth live-action MCU Disney Plus series, I've started to be able to articulate a little bit what makes a successful MCU series for me. And this is a question that I'm going to be asking my guests this season on There Was an Idea. And I'm also going to be asking my guests, are you looking for something different in an MCU show than you are in an MCU movie? I think this is an interesting question to think about. So for me, thinking about what has worked for me and what hasn't as much about the Disney Plus series that we've gotten so far, one of my metrics for success or effectiveness is that it still feels like the MCU, but that it is effectively using the format and the time that the TV series affords it, that it leans into the medium a little bit as opposed to 
begrudging it in some way and just creating a long movie and chopping it up into episodes. Another element for me that I'm looking for is having stakes that feel contained to this particular chapter in the storytelling of the overarching MCU, but that it still feels situated within that larger context, within that larger world. So for example, something like we see in Hawkeye with Rogers the Musical or mentions of the GRC, which was a new term introduced in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but it of course reflects the consequences of the blip. So situating the story within the larger world. But as I said, the more successful shows and the more successful moments of these shows that have worked for me are the ones that you feel like this is uh, contained storytelling. That we get a more intimate picture of a particular character or characters digging into what makes them tick. Who are they? And the first couple of shows specifically with Wanda and Vision and Sam and Bucky, these are characters we already knew. Let's take some time to dig in a bit more. And I think to varying degrees, the series have had success with that. One of the other things I think that it needs to feel effective for me is some type of clear thematic through line. So as I said, I've begun to articulate some of these things that have made successful MCU series for me so far here in the Disney Plus world, phase four, 2021 so far. And I imagine that this will continue to develop as we go through as well. And so considering that, the ones that have really hit for me have been those that have those elements. So WandaVision is my favorite of the of the series. I've said this before because I think it ticks a lot of those boxes. It, it plays with the TV show medium. It also plays with the genre of sitcom. It leans into that format. It also really digs into Wanda's mental landscape, getting that intimacy with her. But while it's doing that and feeling very zoomed into this pocket of the world, specifically this dimension that Wanda has created out of her grief, it also reflects the consequences of Endgame. It's clearly set in the world that we know and love. It's incorporating characters from elsewhere in the world so effectively with Darcy and Jimmy Woo, and especially Monica, who is introduced as a new hero to the MCU. So even though it's Wanda's story, we are introduced to this person who we are going to see more of in the future and, and are going to root for. So a lot of these things that WandaVision did so well, in my opinion, are things that I also think Hawkeye can do. And that's why I'm so looking forward to the rest of Hawkeye unfolding and why I have really responded so positively to the first two episodes. So going into Hawkeye in the past couple of months, I mentioned this before, my expectations were quite high because I enjoyed the comic run so much and because I took some time to really think about who Clint has been in the MCU and see this as a really cool opportunity to learn more about him and fill in some of the gaps that have been missing that haven't always uh, enabled audience members like me who didn't immediately latch onto Clint haven't always enabled us to really connect with him. So I've been very much looking forward to that. And I have also had high expectations because the trailers look so good. And I love the Christmas aesthetic and just everything about the look and feel of the trailers just felt so exciting. And I have to say that the first two episodes very much lived up to those expectations. I love the aesthetic of the show. I love the Christmas music. I love the Christmas in New York setting. 
not only because of whatever nostalgia that brings up for me personally, but also because of what New York means to Clint. And I'm going to dig into that in a little bit. I also really appreciate how much it feels like a TV show. It doesn't feel like the people involved in making this set out to make a six-hour movie. It doesn't feel like the people making this were trying to slot their movie idea into a six-episode miniseries format. It feels very much like this is meant to be told in this way. It has that sense of street-level stakes that I was looking for. Ultimately, this is about a family man who is trying to make it home for Christmas, and he's got six days to do it. And I say that as the stakes for Clint, for the Hawkeye who we've known up to this point. But of course, stakes are also established for Kate Bishop. And what surprised me a little bit, even though thinking about it really shouldn't have, watching episode one was like, oh, duh, Kate is kind of the protagonist here. Obviously, they're co-protagonists and they're co-leading the show. But the way that episode one is set up is very much about her. We see 2012 New York. We're immediately thinking about the Battle of New York from Avengers. And I'm sitting there like, oh, cool. Are we going to see like, you know, what Clint was thinking and feeling behind the scenes? Are we going to see him interact with any of the other Avengers? Are we going to see the battle more from his POV? And here's this little girl. And I'm like, oh, obviously, this is going to be Kate's POV. And I was so excited by that, even though it's not necessarily what I was expecting was to start with her, especially to start with her in flashback. I'll talk a little bit more about that opening scene in a few minutes. But then when it cuts to the opening credits, which were beautiful, by the way, and very much reminded me of the art of the comic book, I'm realizing, okay, this is as much Kate's story as it is Clint's, if not more so in a way. And of course, this is kind of similar to what I called like the bridge approach that Black Widow took, which is that the title of the thing is a name of a mantle that multiple people can take on. And in many ways, phase four is really considering this question of mantle making and what that means. But of course, in Black Widow, it's not only a send off for Natasha Romanoff, who we don't expect to see more of in the MCU, but it's also an introduction of Yelena here in Hawkeye. I think it's probably safe to say that this will be our send off of, of Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton. And the next iteration of Hawkeye that we're going to see is going to be Kate Bishop. And I think even more so than Black Widow, which was very much still a film about Scarlett Johansson's character, I think this Hawkeye show is about, quote, Hawkeye, and we're going to see both of these characters being Hawkeye in this show, which leads us to a big question, what makes Hawkeye Hawkeye, which I know I dug into in the Loki show, and the Loki show was obviously much more concerned about this explicitly, what makes a Loki a Loki, because we were dealing with variants of Loki. But to this question of taking on these mantles, there's what makes Steve Rogers Steve Rogers, and there's what makes Captain America Captain America. And then how is Sam Wilson not Steve Rogers, but how can he still encompass Captain America? And I think we're going to sort of see the same thing here with Hawkeye, and I'm very excited about that. I loved everything about episode one. I already mentioned the aesthetic of New York City and the Christmas music. I loved the lighting and the colors. I thought it was really effective how they introduced Kate and caught us up with Clint separately before they come together at the end of the episode. 
it establishes those stakes for Clint and in just a few small moments fills in so many of the gaps for us that we, that at least I've been looking for. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Oh, and of course, episode one also introduces us to the pizza dog. So I should say before going forward that this episode does include spoilers for episode one, of course, but I am going to stay away from any details from episode two. I'm assuming anyone who watched episode one likely also watched episode two, but I want to keep my discussions contained. Of course, some of what I'm saying here can't help but be influenced by the fact that I've already seen episode two, but this discussion will stay focused on episode one. I'm going to be discussing episode two with a couple of guests, and you can hear that episode of the podcast on Tuesday, November 30th. So as you know, if you are a return listener to There Was an Idea, what we do here is dig into some of the big ideas and take some time to analyze concepts that are coming up in these movies and shows. So I always keep an eye out for, especially in the first episode of a new series, what are the themes that might be emerging? What are some significant objects and symbols, any motifs that we're seeing, and of course, characterization and character development. And I always try to find one word, one concept word that kind of encapsulates what the episode is about. And while I definitely think I have one word that would capture episode two and maybe combining episodes one and two together, and I'll, I'll introduce that on the next episode. I think instead of narrowing it down to a, there was an idea about one word here for episode one, there's a few things that I wanna talk through as emerging ideas. Some of them are similar to other concepts that have come up in phase four elsewhere. The idea of legacy, this was big in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This is coming up here specifically for Clint. He's faced with the legacy of both Hawkeye and of Ronan repeatedly in episode one. And this is also connected to the concept of trauma, which is something that we've also seen elsewhere in the MCU series, specifically in WandaVision, but really in all of them in some way, that Clint is definitely having experiences of PTSD. So I'll use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about his character in this first episode and a couple of crucial scenes in which we see these, these big ideas play out. So the very first scene in which we see Clint in episode one is one in which he's being confronted with the legacy of, of Hawkeye and of the Avengers. I should say the first scene in which we see present day Clint. Of course, we see him in the flashback that opens the show. We'll talk about that more later. He and his children are in the audience at Rogers the Musical, which everything that I could have hoped for after seeing the trailer, Rogers the Musical, I know we only get a piece of one song, although I have listened to the full song on Spotify. Definitely check it out if you haven't already. It's absolutely delightful. I love how clever I could do this all day is as a refrain in the song. So incredibly funny and immediately connects the audience with this legacy of these heroes who who we love in this lighthearted and nostalgic and sweet way but then immediately puts us in the POV of one of the people who had to live through these events and inviting us to realize just how bizarre it would be to have that experience of seeing a moment in your life that, yes, is, is one of heroism and, and people are praising you for it, but is also one of extreme trauma 
in that scene in which Clint is in the audience watching this, he's he's watching how his own life is being played out for for laughs and for joy. But this was a moment for him that would have been marked by extreme stress and guilt over the fact that there were people in New York who lost their property or were injured or even lost their lives because of this event. And on top of that, he's a soldier who is watching this war that he participated in play out in front of him with singing and dancing. And it is bizarre and it would create such a strange cognitive dissonance and such a strange experience for for anyone for anyone to to sit through that. And on top of that, even though the scene that we're watching here is focusing on that one particular battle of New York, it's also bringing up for him all of the other memories that he has associated with these people. Specifically, they focus in on his relationship to Natasha, intentionally so, as his daughter says, she was his best friend. And I love how they bring us into his POV, specifically during the part of the song that is focusing on her and the camera is focusing on on the Broadway actress who is playing Natasha. And that's when we realize that Clint is not actually listening, that he's turned off his hearing aid. And it's such a powerful moment orally and visually there. And then we follow him to the bathroom where, again, he's constantly reminded of his past, of his legacy, of his of his public-facing persona. He's at the urinal in the bathroom and somebody has graffitied Thanos was right. And then immediately he's faced with this other dude who stands right next to him at the urinal which I think is a pretty big faux pas when it's a large empty bathroom. But on top of that, this dude is asking him for a selfie. And it's funny and it plays on the fact that, you know, whoever is here to see Rogers the Musical is obviously going to recognize Clint. I think it's interesting when Clint is recognized and when he's not. And that comes up in episode two as well. But so, of course, somebody here at the audience is going to recognize him and be like, oh, man, like, you know, my kids love you. And what a funny experience that must be for Clint Barton. And I love how despite the fact that he's grumpy in this, he also isn't he's not entirely mean to this guy. He's just like I don't know if it's an appropriate time. And you can tell that he's annoyed, but he, but that he's also ultimately a nice person. He's very sweet with his kids. Their relationship is is lovely. The fact that the kids are so understanding that they uh, meet him outside and realize that they're not going to sit through the rest of the musical is is very sweet, especially his daughter, it seems, is very dialed into where he's at emotionally. It a little bit begs the question, why did they even go to this musical in the first place? But, but I'm willing to suspend my disbelief on that because I think this was just such a, a beautiful way of catching us up on where Clint is at emotionally and having him face the legacy of Hawkeye and the Avengers and getting us into a little bit, what is his relationship to New York? I love that this series is set in New York because that's where that battle took place. The first Avengers battle and famously a beautiful city to visit in winter, specifically around Christmas time. He's talking to his kids about the Rockefeller Center tree. It would make sense. An ordinary Midwestern American family would like to go visit New York around Christmas time. And he's playing at that, right? He does have a role of being an ordinary family guy, but that this is also a battleground for him. 
and he's constantly reminded of it. The Chinese restaurant scene as well, in which the server, in which the server tells him that the uh, the bill is on the house, and Clint is just like, "That's not necessary." He's clearly taught his kids to be really grateful because they all say thank you, and it's 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 very sweet. But again, what would this do to a person to be constantly reminded? To me, that scene definitely had echoes of, especially right after the September 11th attacks in 2001, the way that first responders were were often being approached and, and treated in in New York City, and and still, and still to this day, it's, it's something that is very real. I, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I grew up in New York, and so I've not in the city itself, but that I've definitely seen that play out in in real life. So I mentioned Clint facing the legacy of Hawkeye. There's also the legacy of Ronan to contend with for him. Clearly, the Ronan years are not something that he is proud of. This is something that haunts him. And it's something that stands in contrast to the public persona of Hawkeye, who, as we see in Rogers the Musical, as we see in the way that he is embraced by the people of New York who recognize him, Hawkeye is a hero. Ronan is this shadowy figure. Uh, Nobody knows or would suspect that that's their Hawkeye, who was also Ronan. And even though Ronan was fighting for something that was for the greater good, right, trying to eliminate underground organized crime, he did kill multiple people, which is something that, as we see in Endgame, when Natasha comes and talks to him, it's it's not something that he... It's something that he feels pushed to, but not necessarily proud of. And I think the Ronin part of his life is obviously something that he has carried some guilt and shame over. I like the way that the show brought in that element. I like that we're not necessarily going to be focusing on the Ronin years too much, but that it brought in the suit and the sword in a clever way and got Kate connected to the suit and the sword which is reason enough for Clint to get involved here at the end of this episode. Clearly, the Ronin suit, if we're going to talk about significant objects, is clearly symbolic here. And we're clued into that by the fact that Kate is wearing it in this episode. So in terms of thinking about other emerging themes, or really an emerging question that I think this series is going to dig into, is what do Clint and Kate have in common? And that connects to this overarching idea of, okay, so then who is, what is Hawkeye? In quotes, as a mantle. What does it mean to be Hawkeye on the Avengers? And I like that the show is cleverly playing into the fact that Hawkeye is not necessarily the favorite. That feels very meta as well. This is more in episode two than in episode one, so I'm not going to talk about that too much yet. You know, of course, in that episode, that's when Kate talks to him about his branding problem in a very meta way. But there's even, if you look at the still from Rogers the Musical from episode one, the way that the seven heroes, not six, because Ant-Man is also there inexplicably. I liked that funny line that Clint's like, he wasn't there. Uh, Very funny. But the way they're all standing up on the stage and Captain America's got his shield extended and it's covering the actor, the Broadway actor who's playing Clint here. It's covering his face and he's kind of like shifting to the side so that, you know, you can see him and a a clever visual here. We know, and I think the people making the show know, and I think that Jeremy Renner knows that Hawkeye is not necessarily the favorite. So that question, what does it mean to be Hawkeye on the Avengers? The funny answer might be "Ah, to be the one that, you know, pretending to need this guy really brings the team together, as Nat says in Avengers. 
but we're going to see that it goes deeper than that. So already I'm looking for what do Clint and Kate have in common here? They are both regular people who choose to fight the good fight. And as we've seen with Clint again and again, why do they do this? We know another thing they have in common is loss and this desire to protect their family. We see that with Kate from a very young age. She experiences the loss of her dad at a very formative time in her life. She's very, very young. And from that very young age, tells her mom, I need to protect us. Now we know Clint, older already as an established family man who wants to protect his family. And we see the loss that he experiences through being part of the Avengers and specifically of his friend Nat. We still don't really know who Hawkeye was, excuse me, who Clint was before joining the Avengers. I don't know if that's something that we're going to see more of because I think that would kind of help answer this question as well. I should say we don't know within the context of the MCU. In comics lore, we know that Clint was orphaned. We know that Clint was part of the circus. But I'm curious to see what they'll do here, if they'll do anything here with uh, more of Clint's backstory. But regardless, looking out for what these two characters have in common, I think is going to be really big clue into what it means to be Hawkeye. And as I said, I definitely think that phase four is taking this into consideration. What are the roles? What are the identities of these mantles? How may that be similar or different to the people themselves who embody them? Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'm going to share some thoughts that a listener actually sent me on Twitter. And she took the time to really dig into some of her thoughts on Clint's character and how he's and how he's portrayed in these first two episodes. And I'm really grateful to her for reaching out and sharing that. So I want to give some airtime to her thoughts. And it kind of connects here to of who Clint has been in the past and then how he's characterized here in the show. So so stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. So I've also mentioned in my discussions about phase four so far that what seems to be an overarching theme for all of the installments that we've seen this year is this idea of purpose. And I definitely think that's at play here. It connects to this idea of identity and the roles that team members play as part of a team. So that's something that I'm going to be looking out for over the course of the show as well, especially as we get further introduced to Kate and and see this as kind of her origin story in a way. What is her purpose here? What does she believe her purpose to be? How is that similar or different than Clint's purpose when it comes to being Hawkeye? And I'll transition sort of from this more thematic discussion into, into other standout moments and favorite moments from episode one, the opening scene As I already mentioned, I was so excited to see 2012 show up on the screen and to see New York. And when I realized that we weren't going to get Clint's POV here, but instead Kate's, I was weirdly surprised, but I don't know why I was really in retrospect. Um, Vera Farmiga is an incredible actor. I love that she's playing Kate's mom here, and I was immediately taken with her presence less familiar with the actor who played her dad here, Brian Darcy James. But within these few short moments, you get a real sense of who Kate and her parents are living in this gorgeous building in New York, clearly a lot of money. And we're told here at the top that this seems to be money from her dad's side of the family and not as much her mom's. There's a great line later on as well 
that I love that Kate's mom, Eleanor, says to Kate, she says, young people think they're invincible and rich people think they're invincible. And you have always been both. And then something to the effect of take it from somebody who hasn't always been those things. You're not right. She's not invincible. thought that was great. Great line, again, showing us that Kate is somebody who comes from a very privileged position that she has had, even though she suffers this terrible loss of her father, who's, by the way, last lines to her when she asked, what would you do in a hurricane? I would do what I always do, protect you. That obviously was a huge influence on her. And she tells her mom at the funeral scene, I need to protect us. And she tells her, I need a bow and arrow. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But Of course, she suffered that terrible loss, but she has come from very supportive parents. We see in the opening credits the way that her mom has been there for her and guided her. And clearly they had money and resources for her to train in martial arts and fencing and archery and all of these things. We know that she's in college and that she can afford to royally mess up in the way of destroying a bell tower at Stain Tower, by the way, like Obadiah Stain. Love that connection. But regardless, she can afford to mess up. Her mom's going to pay for it. So they've done a lot to really establish uh, where she comes from very early on. But back to the opening scene. I love how it credibly establishes why Clint would be her favorite Avenger. She was very young. She was very impressionable. She was going through this traumatic experience. And she sees Clint Barton outside of her window, shooting arrows at aliens, that iconic fall off of the building with his bow pulled back, shooting arrows into the air. And of course, that would be an incredible thing for a young kid to see in that moment. Of course, she wants a bow and arrow after seeing that. Of course, he's her inspiration. And I like also how this plays on the level of us as audiences, thinking about seeing Clint for the first time. Obviously, that wasn't his first scene, but seeing him for the first time in 2012, seeing that iconic moment and reframing it, showing it to us from a different perspective. This is one of the things that the MCU does so well. And this opening scene is already one of my favorite things that they've done, especially within these TV series because of the way that it does that. Again, to reiterate, I think they very cleverly established background information on Kate in the opening credit scene showing her relationship to her mom, showing that she is very accomplished, that she's won all of these trophies, and that she has had a lot of experience in being trained in archery and in martial arts. But of course, that does not exactly translate to real world experience, right? There's the way that you can be trained in something in a very controlled setting and excel at it. Clearly, she's won lots of awards. She's very athletic. She can scale buildings. And so she's credibly established here as being strong and talented and skillful and innovative and inventive and all of these things. But also she hasn't really fought guys like the tracksuit mafia in real life before. So there is that element of inexperience as well. We see more of that into episode two. But I like how they showed the fighting here that she's at this charity auction Great scene. Love the aesthetics of the charity auction. And when chaos breaks out, this explosion and these tracksuit guys coming in, she's fighting. She grabs that Ronin suit and she's ready to go. This shows a very Clint-like desire to be part of the action and to fight the good fight and not think twice and not 
to not walk away just because she can and she could have. Um, but it was cool to see even in the fighting style the ways in which she is skilled, but then also the ways in which she is new to this part of it. And I liked that juxtaposition. I should mention everything with Kate, I loved. I found Haley Steinfeld to be incredibly charming and dynamic in the role. She's funny. I love the way that she carries herself in a suit. I love the way that she's willing to get down and dirty and fight. She's clearly, again, come from this privileged position, but she doesn't seem like a spoiled brat. She wants to do right. If you don't have enough reason to like her, she saves a dog, a sweet pizza dog. Cannot wait to see more of Lucky the Pizza Dog in the show. And everything about her worked for me from the way they set up her backstory to giving her some motivation here in this show. Obviously, she cares deeply about her mom. Her mom's engaged to this doofus of a guy who is wonderful, by the way. I love Jack Duquesne as played by Tony Dalton. I love how much he looks like a cartoonish villain, but my sense is that he's being set up as a bit of a red herring when it comes to the larger conflict of the show. I'll talk more about him in episode two, though, for sure. But just to wrap up my previous thought, I think that I like how the character is laid out on the page, but I especially like what Haley Steinfeld brings to the role because she is very, very likable. And again, I'll hold off a little bit. There there are things I want to say about her characterization that I think fall more into episode two. So I'll keep that for for there, even though it's it's hard because I can't not allow that second episode to influence what I thought of her in the first episode. But just the little moments of characterization, her mom tells her to put on this red dress for the charity auction, and instead she puts on this black suit. She wants to make sure she takes care of the dog, but is she entirely a competent adult? Probably not, right? All she has to give the dog is, is pizza. So I'm really loving what we're seeing, seeing from Kate so far. The tracksuit mafia, th- these guys are from the comics. I thought they were great here with their overuse of the word bro. And I think that what's interesting is that we were set up here with the auction in which we see the Ronin sword and the Ronin suit, but the tracksuit guys aren't there for either of those. They're there for a different lot number, which is a watch. So this is something that I don't really have too many theories on yet, this watch that comes from the Avengers compound and why they are there for it, but I'm looking forward to see where where that goes. And then, of course, episode one ends on the meeting between Clint and Kate, which is great. How he takes off her hood and her mask and he's just like, come on. Like he wasn't expecting to see a a young girl. And uh, it's great. She's like, you're all guy. And uh, again, I won't talk about how that picks up in episode two, but it was a really great, great way to end episode one. Only other thing that I wanted to mention here is Linda Cardellini. I love Linda Cardellini. She's awesome. I love how much of a supportive partner Laura is to Clint. And even though she's not there in New York with him and the kids, the fact that she is on the phone with him, which I know is kind of a cheap device to use in shows and movies, like, okay, it's he's talking to somebody on the phone. But I just always love to see her because she is so wonderful. And even though she doesn't play a big role in the MCU, I like that she's still here. 
We haven't forgotten about her. And she is. She is a supportive partner. Again, we see more of that in episode two. But on that note, I'm not going to put too much in the category of questions, thoughts, predictions for next week because we've already seen episode two. So you can hear me discuss some question, thoughts, predictions for the rest of the series with my guests on the next episode. So as I mentioned, I had a Twitter listener reach out to me and shared some extensive thoughts on specifically Clint's characterization in the first two episodes. And I'm not going to read everything that she sent. If you'd like to read it, please check out my Twitter thread. But this is user at A-L-I-C-J-A-006. And she writes, so far I'm in love with the show. I'm not that huge of an MCU fan, but kind of fascinated by the world they managed to create. And I think that's a really interesting perspective. Quote, yet this show is something special, since Clint Barton has always been a special character for me, as well as Natasha. And I know it's akin to blasphemy, it seems, but I'm much more interested in his psyche than Kate's. So I'll be talking mostly about him. Sorry. Don't ever be sorry for who resonates with you in the MCU and who you want to talk about. I think that uh, while Kate is certainly getting a lot of attention from new viewers, and I myself am a big fan of Kate, I absolutely think it's appropriate to dig into Clint here. And um, I love that you chose to focus on him. So again, this listener shares some thoughts on Clint over the course of episodes one and two. So if by some chance you've listened this far, but you don't want to hear anything about episode two, turn off this episode now because I am going to share her thoughts here. She writes, for starters, I didn't expect him to be so mean to Kate. I know he's mad at her, but he's never been like that to people, although he's always been a bit rough around the edges and more on the introvert side. Definitely think that's a good point. We see that in episode two. And it's not only towards Kate. He wasn't too kind to the toilet selfie man. By the way, it was a great move not to show if he finally did agree to take the photo, although I know he, although I know if he did anyway. And his meeting with Grills was just, well, that definitely wasn't a noble hero talk. That was bully talk. Can't wait to talk more about Clint with Grills and Clint's relationship to Kate in episode two. Of course, and, and I'm continuing with the listener's thoughts, of course it's understandable why he's like that now. As Kate said, he hides his heart, his emotions, under 16 layers of hardened steel because he's overwhelmed by all the loss and trauma he suffered. He's battle-worn and totally disillusioned, cynical even, after everything he's experienced. And surely the years spent as a lone, merciless vigilante must have affected him in some way. So no wonder he's even less civil than he was before. I think that this is really, really interesting stuff. Thank you for sharing this. Speaking of which, he still seems to be coping with that. First of all, there's the feeling of guilt. Secondly, nobody knows Ronan's identity and Clint probably should confess and Clint probably should confess it was him because it's the right thing to do. But it's also an extremely hard thing to do when the world and more importantly, his family see him as an impeccable hero. I think this is really on point. I was kind of getting at this earlier, but thank you for stating it so, so well here. I'll continue to quote, revealing the truth might turn everyone against him and maybe even cause his family to fall apart. So he keeps hiding it, but it doesn't mean the problem is solved. I'm jumping around a little bit in the writer's quote here. There's also this feeling he doesn't deserve all the appreciation and gratitude he gets because if people just knew, notice how he's a bit uncomfortable when the waiter brings him his free dinner as a thank you. I like to think it's because of his awareness that he as a serial killer shouldn't be rewarded. Very interesting stuff, listener. Thank you for sharing this. She goes on to talk about why is he, as she, as she writes, quote, shockingly vicious toward Kate. And she writes, 
But then it hit me, he's just taking it all out on her. All of his pent-up anger, tension, fears, trauma, suffering, and frustration pour out on the person who's admired him so much since her childhood. She has every right to be upset. He's her hero. She looks up to him. He's excited to finally meet him. And he immediately starts treating her like shit. Very interesting to get into more of this in episode two. She goes on to talk about how Kate isn't easily offended. She's naturally cheerful. She's mentally strong. She teases him back. Some of this stuff I want to save for next week's episode. And then she writes, I made him look like an utterly shitty person, didn't I? As if I really, really hated him. But the truth is, I absolutely love this characterization. And I'm with you here, listener, that sometimes these complex portrayals of characters are why we love them so much. She writes, of course, there's plenty of light in Clint, too. His outward meanness and grumpiness is perfectly contrasted with how wonderfully gentle, caring, and protective he is towards his kids. He only looks genuinely happy when he's with them. Yeah, I noticed that, too. And those are the moments when we get the glimpses, when we get to see glimpses of real Clint Barton without that spiky armor of his. Also, the guy is totally selfless. Yes, he may be treating Kate terribly, but do we have any doubts he'd sacrifice his life for her at any given moment without thinking? Not because she's his friend, not yet, but because it's the right thing to do and he, consider, and he considers it his duty. And because protectiveness is at the very core of his mental arrangement. She goes on to talk more about how we see this in Age of Ultron. Still, when she refuses to be kept safe, he doesn't insist that he knows better and what is good for her. He's like, okay, it's your choice. Just change clothes. You can stay here where it's safe. I'll take care of you. But if you step out that door, you're an Avenger, Katie. And listener, this is such an awesome connection to how he treats Wanda in Age of Ultron. I love the way you wrote this here. So thank you so much for bringing that perspective in. And there's more to it as well. I'd encourage you to read all of this listener's thoughts on my Twitter page. And as I said, there's a little bit more to it that I think might be better to hold off and share on the next episode. But if you, like this Twitter user, would like to have your thoughts shared on There Was an Idea, please do reach out to me at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. I'm very much looking forward to working with some of your favorite guests old and some new ones as well this season on the show. And I'm always looking to invite more voices into the conversation, even if you are not here with me on the microphone. So please never hesitate to reach out with your thoughts, questions, ideas, comments, concerns, whatever it may be. If you enjoyed this discussion about the big ideas of Hawkeye episode one, you can follow the podcast at an idea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Artwork was designed by Brooke Pender, who you can follow at D-E-L-T-A dot M-U-S-H on Instagram. And music is by Demeter Salvia, who you can find on Bandcamp or SoundCloud. Thank you for listening and stay tuned in only a few short days to hear me and a couple of guests discuss the big ideas of Hawkeye episode two.